If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and this is Green Dreamer. As a community-powered show, we do need your direct listener support to be able to keep this interdependent podcast alive and continue to explore so many topics and perspectives often sidelined by mainstream media. So if you're moved by our conversations, you can reciprocate support starting from a gift of just $2 at greendreamer.com support. For now, on to today's episode where we're speaking with Kai Bosworth. So that sort of neoliberal environmentalism, technocratic, is also what we would call depoliticizing. It sees the pathway to a better environmental future as one without conflict, and indeed that ought to avoid conflict, and instead seek consensus. Consensus between governments and corporations, between multiple political parties, consequently really avoids any of the kinds of more transformative sorts of policies or, or solutions that extend outside the policy realm that are necessary for confronting the climate crisis as we recognize it today. Kai is a geographer and political ecologist, an assistant professor at the School of World Studies, Virginia Commonwealth University. He's the author of Pipeline Populism, Grassroots Environmentalism in the 21st Century, which looks at pipeline opposition movements in the central United States and the ways in which they have transformed the politics of climate justice. Kai researches affect and emotion, radical politics and materialism, as well as the ways in which space, ecology and nature are enrolled in social projects of oppression or liberation. We begin here as Kai shares about his entry point into looking at movements of climate justice. Around this period of time, around 2006, 2007, I was a college student and really starting to get involved in what we called at that time the youth climate movement. And those of us involved in this broad suite of informal sort of organizations really thought that our main goal was to try to pressure the United States legislature to pass some sort of climate change policy, to pressure the big green groups, environmental nonprofits, to take a greater interest in in climate change and stopping coal plants and hydrofracking and the like. 
and really to push for a more kind of central environmental justice and climate justice lens in these spheres and trying to do this. And we had some victories. Uh, I went to school in Minnesota. You know, we stopped a, a coal plant from being built just over the border with South Dakota. That was a really big deal. And yet, when around 2009 came along, everything seemed to kind of halt to a, a crash, an impasse. Barack Obama was elected, but despite having a majority, a supermajority in both houses of federal Congress, was unable to pass any sort of climate change legislation. At the international level, the Copenhagen Agreement that was reached as part of the UN climate change process was in many ways a disaster. Uh, it was the first big kind of step up from the Kyoto Protocols in the late 90s, but also didn't seem to include any of the necessary policies that we thought ought to be in there. And so as a climate activist too, I was also really curious as to why the sort of mainstream environmental organizations couldn't seem to understand the importance of indigenous and working class leadership in these struggles, who are the, the groups who are really pushing the farthest for the kinds of necessary transformations that we would need to collectively address the root causes of climate change. And so I kind of took a step back, you know, around that period of time and, and began to think to myself, what were the reasons why this particular kind of climate change activism and strategy wasn't working? And what other sorts of political formations might exist that might take us elsewhere? And one of the places I looked was back to where I grew up in Western South Dakota in Achete Shikoan territory, and to a number of small controversies that grew into gigantic struggles over oil pipelines. First, the, the Keystone One, and then the Keystone XL pipeline, and later uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline. And so now, for more than 10 years, I've really been trying to think through the concatenation of different sorts of environmentalisms that emerged on the Great Plains during this period of time and what they tell us both about the possibilities for a different kind of environmentalism, what I describe as a kind of populist environmentalism, as well as the limits of that particular frame to fully, also fully address some of the questions of radical transformations and, and decolonizations that many indigenous activists are raising. Well, this reflects the journey that you just shared, but you begin pipeline populism looking at the technocratic and policy-oriented approaches to conservation and climate action in the past decades, specifically noting how nonprofit strategies of the 1990s and early 2000s adapted themselves to the norms of third-way neoliberalism. And so to offer a historical context before we go on, can you expand on what this elitism in environmentalism has looked like, touching on how they continue today in the forms of the annual United Nations gatherings and who they center as examples? There are a lot of critiques that one can make of environmentalism as it is, you know, the particular forms that it's taken in the United States at different moments of time. So 
oftentimes, if you were to read a kind of environmental history textbook or something like that, the place that you'll first read about is the debates between conservation and preservation and forestry in the early 20th century. You might read about John Muir and Gifford Pinchot and all of these kinds of different visions of nature, whether it should be protected or used, that were advocated for by principally white men. And environmental justice movements have long critiqued the racial and class politics that this particular form of environmentalism took. For example, creating wilderness preserves that have a vision of nature in which humans are not present, that's sterilized of human presence in part because the assumption is that having humans on the landscape is automatically impure or something like that. And so the creation of Yellowstone, for example, required removal of indigenous people from the land. And this sort of model has been spread to all other, many other parts of the world as well. And on the flip side of this sort of vision, this sort of version of environmental elitism that has a much longer history than the 1990s, there's always been sorts of threads of environmental justice movements, as well as a kind of more generic popular environmentalism. Now, you asked about the 1990s, so I, I want to fast forward a little bit through some of the details, but think about particularly how does the form of elitist environmentalism get shored up by a particular kind of what we would call neoliberal politics. So the vision and version of environmentalism that emerged from the, the 1980s and gained ascendance after that was really one where the idea was that nature and, and the problems of environmental degradation ought best to be managed by experts. And those experts, oftentimes in the figure of scientists, but also economists and policymakers, could best achieve those goals by cooperating with each other. So cooperating at the levels of government, policy, advocacy, non-governmental organizations, and oftentimes with corporations. So the argument would go from the advocacy side of things that we can make the biggest impact possible if we get, say, Walmart to change to only using paper sacks. And that requires not working at the level of people's desires. We don't have to transform anything fundamentally. And we can show in our year-end reports how much environmental preservation or environmental goods we, we protected as an organization. Put that out in a direct mail or later an email to those who we are going to solicit funds from. So that sort of neoliberal environmentalism, technocratic, is also what we would call depoliticizing. It sees the pathway to a better environmental future as one without conflict, and indeed that ought to avoid conflict, and instead seek consensus, consensus between governments and corporations, between multiple political parties, consequently really avoids any of the kinds of more transformative sorts of policies or, or solutions that extend outside the policy realm that are necessary for confronting the climate crisis as we recognize it today. 
And this sort of valuation of expertise continues today, right, as shown by a lot of the United Nations convenings and conference of the parties and so forth, although I think it's increasingly being pushed back against and questioned. Yes. Yeah. To address that part of your question, we can just think about the sort of spatial politics of the United, any given United Nations climate change summit. So oftentimes you'll have delegations from certain governments uh, invited. There will be a whole host of representatives, even from fossil fuel industry, from coal firms, from large corporations and the like that have set up tables and, you know, to try and market their new technological solutions and the like. And then there's a whole area outside that's deemed the civil society zone. And that's where people might gather to protest, to conduct some sorts of direct action and the like. And it's seen by those who are involved inside in the, in the United Nations negotiations as kind of simply the place where the young people and non-experts can try to give some moral clarity to what we're going to do inside, which is hash out the, the numbers and, and the details. And it's sort of odd that this continues to this day because, you know, we've had 25, 26 of these council party meetings, and there are also many, many different meetings in between these as well. And when you look at them, there's not a whole lot of success stories and there are certainly reasons for that, struggles over power within the different sorts of governments that, that appear within the COP process. And yet at the same time, there's also sort of some principal exclusions that take place. Going back to 2008, 2009, 2010, that period of time that I called an impasse before, one of the things that was most inspiring to many young climate activists at the time was the leadership that the Bolivian delegation took to simply say, we're done with this council of parties system. We're going to invite people for a different to a different kind of conference where everyone can be inside. Everyone can be part of the delegation. Um, that eventually became the, the Cochabamba agreement for a, a people's climate summit on the rights of Mother Earth. And so it, it isn't to say that the international level can only be the realm of, of technocrats and depoliticized expertise, but that we need different sorts of, or we would probably need different sorts of relationships and, and models to think with than the United Nations one as it currently exists. I've been really interested in this idea of understanding the medium as the message or looking to the form as the message. So if we look at the recent COP26, there are all these different exclusive zones, like the blue zone, the green zone, whatever. And the form that it's taking shape, it's centralized. And if we were to look at whose voices are being centered, who whose expertise is being valued and propped up and so forth. So beyond what's being said and promised, I've found it really important to look at how exactly all of this is taking shape and the forms that they're showing up in. And to move on, a large part of your work has been to look at climate populism and how movements in our more recent past have transformed and challenged that elitist approach to envisioning what change must entail and how that can be enacted. Grounding us in the basics, because I think populism itself is often misunderstood, especially if people have been conditioned by mainstream political narratives, 
How would you explain what populism is and how do we recognize it taking shape within the more recent climate justice movements that challenge the elitist approaches? You're certainly right that populism is a difficult concept to think through, but at its simplest level, it's just a a sort of politics that, a politics of the people, politics that takes the people as the principal authors of political, of democracy, really, of political democracy, who are seeking to, in some ways, reclaim this role from elites, corporations, corrupt politicians, and the like, who have in some ways excluded them from political authorship. Now, part of the reason why we've seen so many debates around populism in recent years is because there is a what Stuart Hall would call an authoritarian populist sort of tendency in some situations around the world, across the global north and global south, to use this sort of rhetorical form of the embattled people positioned against the elites to mobilize people towards reactionary and right-wing ends, towards racism, xenophobia, to anti-globalism and the like. And I think that that is certainly, certainly exists in, in the world. Like we shouldn't say that it doesn't. But part of the problem is that when we look back in history, populism is a lot more complicated. The original sort of populist party in the United States um, that I draw out some of the history of, you know, in interesting ways was extremely successful in the Great Plains of, of South Dakota. It absorbed the Democratic Party, it won governorships, and at the height of its fervor, thought of itself, many populists, many farmers, workers, and the like, who are members of this party, thought of themselves as creating a kind of distinctly United States American socialism. And so it was a kind of radical movement uh, for that time. And yet at the same time, even this sort of rhetorical move that we might think of as more progressive or, or left-wing had its fundamental limits in imagining itself as the people reclaiming power it always performed its own kind of constitutive exclusions, its own kind of simplifications of history of the differences that different people might be subject to based on their social position, based on race, class, and gender, and the like. So I think that we've seen a sort of rise of climate populism in the last 10 years. So a reaction against that sort of technocratic, depoliticizing mode of environmental politics in uh, especially in global north countries where uh, that sort of, that form of neoliberal environmentalism would have been most prominent and so mm. this sort of rhetoric we can see in the emergence of things like the people's climate march um, people's climate movement in some of the green groups that have been pushing for the green green new deal as a kind of people's policy rather than a, a kind of elite policy and I think that overall, you know, I, I feel in some ways torn by the existence of this object. You know, so populism is itself ambivalent, and I also feel ambivalent about it. 
Because on the one hand, this is a huge step up from the dark time of the 1990s. It is politicizing climate change in new ways by highlighting the inequalities that are at the heart of it. Who is harmed most by ongoing impacts of climate change and resource extraction? And who is most responsible for these things? We know that there are deep, deep, deep inequalities between a small share of global of the global rich, of corporations and the like, and the global north in particular, that are responsible for this crisis. And yet at the same time, one of the problems that I've been trying to think through is, does the emergence of climate populism as an attempt to create a mass movement also reorient us, reorient parts of the climate movement away from some of those more radical transformative possibilities? Does the desire to create a movement that is above all popular lead people to, because of what they imagine is popular or unpopular, to shy away from some of the more exciting, more transformative possibilities? And so that's the, that's the problem that lies at the heart of, of the question of populism, populist environmentalism for me. Mm. In pursuit of becoming more popular and appealing to more people and essentially being more palatable, it risks losing the more radical and transformative visions that really will challenge the status quo and that might not be so welcome or appealing to people at first because of especially how most people have been educated in this system and the stories that we've been told about how society should be and so forth. So definitely lots to ponder there. And one form that climate populism takes is, of course, these marches, these climate protests and so forth. And you share that a protest is nothing other than a kind of stage performance. It's meant to demonstrate something to others and to the people who participate in it. And so uh, folks are grappling over what the performance is meant to do, who it's meant to be addressed to, how its exercise of power works and the like, end quote. I've been sitting with a lot of these same questions, having participated in and observed these happenings for years. And I have felt that oftentimes they feel like a spectacle for ourselves, especially when they don't actually disrupt nor really cause a strain on the existing economy and centralized system beyond maybe some roads being shut down and, of course, the police force being mobilized. So I wonder, how do we make sense of the role of these protests beyond a cultural moment if they alone, more often than not, haven't really resulted in material, systemic, and political transformations? Yeah, totally. There's a lot to unpack there. And I think that the first thing to think about is that protests on marches are, above all, collective events. And so what they do at their basic level is work on the people that come to them. Now, they're supposed to do other things beyond that. You know, ideally, you would think that something like a protest or march might galvanize other people to act, might demonstrate power, and in the case of direct action, might actually 
stop or reroute some of the the very things that you oppose the the sort of flows of money and fossil fuel and et cetera, et cetera. But before doing any of those things, before any of those strategic levels, any sort of collective event like this is working on people. It's doing work to tell a story to ourselves, about ourselves, about who we are, right? And so I've been really interested in protests of all kind, but certainly marches as one of the emblematic sorts of populist moments where people gather in search of the name for that collective, that we, who are the we, who are the people who are going to be the subjects of and the authors of the transformation of climate politics. And of course, we can go through some of the other really important parts of where this would lead us, because of course, no march or protest of any kind gathers a coherent we. It gathers a lot of disparate people from a lot of different social positions and backgrounds and like who might be viewing the protest in radically, vastly different ways. And yet at the same time, these sorts of events can be indicative of both that searching for a collective, as well as the inability to give a name or a a sort of strategic action to that collective. It's kind of like, it's almost as if people are searching for mass politics, as if once we found mass politics, then we we would have the strategy already. When in fact, that sort of puts the cart before the horse. We have to, in some ways, construct and assemble a mass politics with its strategy and its identity along the way. So I would separate certain sorts of, of marches and protests that, you know, all, all protests are performative. All protests are performing for others and on and for ourselves and for stages. But there are certain kinds of protests and marches that seem uniquely, I would say, unaware of the fact that they are also doing work on the subjects who engage in them. And so as someone who's interested in in space and spatial politics and the politics of emotion and subjectivity, that's sort of what I'm trying to think through in highlighting the deeply ambivalent, if not, um, I don't want to necessarily be completely critical and say that, that such marches are completely a waste of time or useless, but at the very least, they're they're very deeply ambivalent in in their sorts of possibilities in comparison to other sorts of political strategies. Mm. You mentioned understanding the collective and the people, and foundational to people's movements and populism is the idea of quote unquote we the people, especially in the US, it's known as something explicitly stated in the US Constitution. Elsewhere, of course, the idea of the people also resonates as well. Although how the people is conceptualized is worth deconstructing. As an example, your research has demonstrated how indigenous nations are often written out of the people. So what should we understand about this concept of peoplehood as what is being constructed in opposition to the elite establishment through populist politics? And what does it even mean to find unity as the people when a lot of times our ideals and values and worldviews differ so immensely based on how we relate to 
the land and to place and to one another? Yeah, excellent, excellent question. So going back to how we talked about and, and framed the question of neoliberal politics, another way that we might think about its depoliticizing edge is as also being an individualizing edge that for a certain kind of neoliberalism, politics is about individual actions. It's about consumption choices, voting, and donating your money, but it's never about collective action. So what populism puts back into the frame as its sort of critique of a kind of neoliberal environmental politics is the question of collectivity. And so that's super important, super important. But at the same time, in some ways, the version of collectivity that we, the people, seems to point us towards is actually one that's almost a kind of meta-individuality. It's a weird philosophical way of putting it, but essentially we, the people, has a certain kind of unmarked identity in it. Of course, pointing back at the Constitution means that it points back at citizenship. And we know that throughout time and to this day, citizenship in the United States is, is contested. The rights and privileges that go along with citizenship are exclusive to those who are not imprisoned, to those who are unrecognized migrants, and for large portions of history, citizenship was not granted or understood to be extended to indigenous people, to Asian Americans, obviously to enslaved people who are mostly African American. And so it's a very, very limited sort of collectivity. And so what I try to think through is how we the people seems to point us towards a desire to be collective, and yet that's not the only form that collectivity can take. You can also have forms of collectivity in solidarity across difference, and solidarity would entail a different sort of thinking about our relationships with others. I mean, for me as a settler, it would require thinking about you know my inheritance and responsibility to the places where I grew up and the indigenous people, indigenous nations, whose land was dispossessed historically. We would have to think about things like reparations to think through solidarity as one mode of being collective. And so I, I understand why people are interested in reclaiming that sort of sense of community and collectivity And yet I also think we need to be careful and and trouble it a little bit and think about whether the historical citations and forms of identification that it enacts are limited in some crucial ways. 
And on a related note, especially evidenced through pipeline populism, there's this love of the land. Although, again, that love is rooted in different things for different people, and it orients us towards different political ideologies and ideals based on, for example, whether the motivation to protect the land from, say, pipeline development may come from a relationship of land ownership and control and domination, or whether it's rooted in something like kinship. So I would love if you could speak to this tension and the crossovers of nationalism Uh, environmentalism and indigenous sovereignty as they might be woven together in pipeline populism by a shared love of place? Yeah, the question of land is one of the crucial instances for thinking about how the possibilities of populism emerged on the Great Plains, as well as their limitations. And so if you think about a sort of populist strategy for producing climate action in conditions not of our choosing. The idea would be to try to create a collective that has some sort of shared interest that despite the fact that people are coming from different backgrounds, that we all have, um, or as many of us as possible, have an interest in preventing this pipeline from getting built. But you need something positive as well. It's not just that we're against the pipeline. Uh, We have to be for something too. And in the situation of, again, this is one portion of pipeline opposition, but there was one portion of pipeline opposition that took this sort of populist line and said, you know what, farmers, ranchers, Native nations, environmentalists, what we can all agree on is that we need to defend the land. It turns out though that at least what I argue is that for some people, this meant very, very different things. So for landowners, protecting the land meant protecting their rights to private property. And joining this movement meant a desire to return to the status quo of American politics, the normal way of of doing things. For environmentalists, maybe there is a more complicated understanding of land at play. We might think about Aldo Leopold's land ethic and that sort of tradition of public lands, caring for the land that, you know, inheres in thinking about ecological politics. But at the end of the day, that sort of vision of environmentalism has very little to say about sovereignty, about control of land and and who has the right to make these decisions. So for for Native nations and really the leadership of Indigenous people and the Shedi Shikoa Nibriate as a whole on the question of pipeline opposition is crucial. And yet their understanding of land is one that's far more politicized. And I don't mean to necessarily speak for and about this in a kind of like ethnographic sort of depoliticized way. I know you've had you know, Nick Estes on your show, who clearly is speaking to some of these issues as well, much better than I could. But the point is simply this, that sovereignty is about indigenous nations, collective inheritance and relationality and care for each other and the more than human relations that inhere in the land uh, with non-human others, with the land itself and people as land. 
And that's in contradiction, you know, that would entail a contradiction with that system of private property, which divides the earth up into little plots and says that, says to each landowner, actually, that you're the sovereign of your territory. You're the one who makes the decisions about what happens on your on your little plot of land. And the old, as the old saying goes, every man is the king of his castle. And that's kind of one of the principal metaphors of property, of private property in its Western traditions. And incidentally, then, this, this love of one's land, of one's individual land, can extend to the love of one's land as it's understood to be a kind of fatherland or, or motherland, as it's sometimes put in Euro-American traditions, which principally is about the nation. And so you can see creeping in here, despite the fact that this was ostensibly a kind of progressive environmentalist vision of defense of the land, the possibility of also a kind of exclusive uh, possessive nationalism, that this is our land and we need to, and what, what some pipeline opponents would say is that we need to keep the Canadians out of it, keep the Chinese out of it. These should be our decisions. And so I always kind of want to think about, you know, when, when these statements are made and, and when these sorts of rhetorical devices are used that are deeply emotional and have a lot of moral weight to them, we always have to go back and think about, okay, who is being talked about here? What, what do we mean by land? Which people are attached to which sorts of land and with what political effects? Yeah, there are so many layers of complexity there. In terms of looking at the actual impacts, you write, if environmental populists are correct in thinking that only through mass people's movements could we adequately and democratically address global climate change, scholars and activists alike must grapple with the tensions and dangers in the desires and ideologies embedded in this genre of politics, end quote. This sums up a lot of what we just discussed, and I want to take this forward by asking, based on history and what we do know, do we understand populist messaging and movement building to be effective in helping us to go farther together in terms of driving the more tangible changes? And if so, does it call for a more materialist lens and approach that at least temporarily sets aside a lot of the culture wars and fights over political correctness and worldviews and values that oftentimes divide people who have at least some shared material needs that may be more urgent? Because perhaps these more immediate collective efforts could benefit more people, although, of course, two different levels. I think that the question of whether and to what degree populism is effective is very much a partial one. So the sort of populist strategy that I describe here is really good at reactivating or activating for the first time people who might not think of themselves as political or might be depoliticized by the very real material effects of and differentiated effects of global capitalism over, especially over the last 50, 60 years. Not that they aren't affected by it longer than that, but we'll just leave that aside for a second. But on the other hand, what is more difficult to figure out is 
whether even that sort of activation, that sort of political activation, can only create a kind of thin politics, you know, one that really is only invested in the question of grievance against those elites, those outsiders or corrupt elements, versus what I've been calling here a transformative politics, which I think we might also agree would have to be a materialist politics in some kind of way, involve, and by that I mean involve certain kinds of material redistributions of wealth and health and well-being, that I would also argue entails at least some sort of revolutionary situation, at least some sort of extended event or moment in which our horizons for what we think is possible and what we think is possible to be popular are dramatically transformed. And so I think one of the, in that quote that you just read, one of the dangers of populism is that it can step on the gas pedal really, really quick. And one can think that we're totally winning because we're getting more popular than we used to be. We're getting more politicized than we used to be. When from another perspective, those changes are, can seem pretty incremental. You know, it's difficult to say, for example, that one sort of climate politics is better off today than it was 10 years ago. You know, we don't have those international agreements that we would need. We don't have those policies in place at the United States level. But on the other hand, there's another sort of desire for a different kind of popularity a sort of transformative popularity that seems more, far more possible today than it did 10 years ago. And that's that, that desire for that transformation to be popular, the desire for the kinds of reorganizations of space and infrastructure and opportunities for flourishing that the slogan, Mini Wachoni, you know, water is life, seems to speak to and about. And so the, the blockade at, at Standing Rock of the Dapple pipeline, even though it was unsuccessful in stopping that pipeline from being built, opened up a wider range, perhaps, of political desires for different forms of collectivity, different forms of, and certainly different forms of materialist analysis then we're present in some of the more kind of some of the, I guess what I would describe as the more central centrist, more liberal forms of environmental populism that still are attached to things like nonprofits, funding agencies, and a desire to be popular that's registered in the number of emails that you have signed up. So I guess looking forward to help us further think outside the box you shared the best adherence of the Green New Deal point towards not a historic nor contemporary set of policies associated with the New Deal, but instead the mass struggle that forced their passage. The problem isn't simply that the New Deal had certain unintended racial effects, which we can now correct, 
but that the deal was itself a capitulation and capture of the more radical agitations of the movement. If mass agitation and struggle is to be in our minds, the subjects we create must be more transformative than the people allows. This means holding out space for organizations, councils, cadres, and mutual aid organizations not frequently associated with popular mobilization, end quote. So with this in mind, what does it mean for us to envision change beyond the idea of the people? And what lessons would you encourage our listeners walk away from this conversation with? Yeah, I think that the lesson is always to, whether you're looking back in and comparing to deeper historical moments or thinking about the balance sheet of the present, the successes and failures and more ambivalent moments that you might experience to always be conscious of the range of powers that you or your group has and is situated within. Okay. So like when we look back at the moment of the new deal, we shouldn't be thinking about what's in the policy, you know, what was passed. We should be thinking about the broad range, the explosive and effusive range of different types of organized and unorganized actions that regular people were undertaking on a day-to-day basis for 5, 10, 15 years, and in some cases, much longer. So to bring that into the present then, Having a, a mass, having you know X number of people reply that they're going to come to your march on Facebook, is in itself a measure of the power that the event or the group has to shape, you know, the political parameters of the situation. Where that power comes from isn't just a, a sort of calculation of the, you know, the number of people. But it's the ranges of the capacities of those, how those people acting together can do something, you know, can pursue some sort of action. And any group's power extends as far as that which it can do. So we can seem powerless at one moment. We can seem atomized, alienated, apart from each other caught in these kinds of cycles of performative politics. And yet at the same time, very quickly, when folks come together in in collectives and experiment, really, they can enact all different sorts of alternative futures that would would have been unimaginable to us even a couple weeks prior. So I don't know if I have advice per se, because I'm always grappling with these problems. Like these are problems to be thought through. I don't have, if I had solutions, I would just be doing them. But one method for thinking about how to grapple with those problems is to always keep in mind that, that sort of simple question that one's power, one's collective power extends as far as what you can do. And you should always be pushing and thinking about what do we have the power to do, and also learning the lesson, what don't we have the power to do? Learning that lesson from your failures. And think about it, you know, as clear-headed as you can. It got too hot, and so we overthrew 
the system is there's no place for human existence like right here on this bright blue marble orbited by trash man there's no What has been an impactful book that you've read, or a publication that you follow? Yeah, one book that I think fits quite nicely with this conversation uh, that your listeners might appreciate is Winona LaDuke's collection of essays that's called "To Be a Water Protector: The Rise of the Windigo Slayers." And LaDuke really thinks about this and, and writes quite poetically about this question that I just ended on. What's the spark that brings people together, and how can we kind of sustain it? What institutions do we have to think through, and the like? So I really like that. What personal mottos, mantras, or practices do you engage with to stay grounded? Uh, yeah, we always, I guess, have to keep in mind that our horizon is a certain sort of transformation of the world. We want more than this to be, you know, the same or to be stuck in holding power. Uh, we have to have a certain kind of optimism of our will in thinking that and knowing that we have to change it. Mm. And what are some of your biggest sources of inspiration right now? My number one biggest source of inspiration continues to be young people and to being in conversation with young people. Because I'm constantly and consistently floored by their capacity to analyze and understand the stakes of the situation we're in, and to do so with a clear-headed and deeply political, deeply radical analysis. Well, we are coming to a close, but Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Kai's work, as well as his book, Pipeline Populism, you can head to kaibosworth.weebly.com, and you can also follow him on Twitter, at Kai Bosworth. Kai, thank you so much for so generously sharing your knowledge and learnings with us here. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Uh, yeah, just keep fighting the good fight. Thanks. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To help us keep the show alive and reciprocate support for our work, you can head to greendreamer.com support. We also deeply appreciate the five-star reviews and whenever you get the chance to share some of your favorite episodes with your friends. We also want to thank the support from and partnership with Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Things It Would Have Been Helpful to Know Before the Revolution by Father John Misty. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcripts are edited by Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>